I'm sitting at a table in a tacky bar with wooden bats and signed baseball gloves of dubious authenticity on the walls, surrounded by boisterous, inebriated men in collared shirts, with whom I have nothing in common. I flag down a waitress and ask for another Limey's Red, which, so far, makes six for the night. The trick is to drink just enough so that the faces of my companions become unrecognizable, but not so much that they try to help me walk outside, because they must never touch me, ever. It's as simple as that. When I was a baby, I would cry whenever my mother held me in her arms, my tantrums only ceasing when I was released to the sanctuary of my crib. Tests were performed, experts were consulted, and a diagnosis was made. Some people are allergic to peanuts, pollen, or cat hair. I was allergic to the human touch. In high school, I went on one date with a sophomore named Marian Kozlowski. Everything was going fine until she tried to hold my hand during a tear-jerking Tom Hanks speech in Forrest Gump, which caused me to shriek and knock my 32-ounce Diet Sprite into her lap. A week later, I worked up the courage to ask her for a second date, and she said, The only way I'm going to spend time with a boy who can't touch me is if he's a quadriplegic or he's incarcerated. From that point on, I was painfully aware that my stock was low. I was less desirable than a crippled criminal. My self-imposed exile from the dating scene freed up a lot of extra time, and I excelled both at academics and non-contact sports such as golf, bowling, and singles tennis. Golf was my favorite since you were never expected to shake your opponent's hand, which prevented a lot of awkward moments for me. I pursued a business degree at the University of Wisconsin, and after graduation I found a job with an insurance company in downtown Madison. My first week of employment, I was required to attend a variety of diversity training seminars and participate in team building exercises, one of which was the trust fall, where you tip over backwards into the arms of your partner. My partner was a systems administrator named Humphrey, and when I informed Humphrey that I wasn't going to catch him, he just snorted and said, Jones, you're a real character. As he slowly teetered towards me, I panicked and leapt out of the way, letting him land flat on his back on the thin rayon carpet. An ambulance was called and I was allowed to sit out of the remaining team building exercises. Although the starting pay was good and the health benefits were excellent, my new job did have its downsides. For one, commuting to work was often a chore as my transportation options were very limited. I didn't own a car, taxis were too expensive, and the ever-present threat of people brushing against me made public transportation out of the question. Madison is very bike-friendly, but the Wisconsin winters aren't, and after almost losing a finger to frostbite during my arduous trek down East Johnson, I knew I needed an alternative method, or my typing abilities would fall far below the required 70 words per minute. The eventual solution 
was the office carpool, with whom I struck an unusual arrangement. Due to the cramped interiors of the cars and the potential for my co-workers to inadvertently touch me, I rode in the trunk of an Oldsmobile Cutlass with all the briefcases, like the victim of a mafia hit, the muffled sounds of Ario Speedwagon and Journey bleeding through the rear leather seats as I lay in a fetal position. It was fairly uncomfortable, but while my co-workers dreaded coming to the office on Mondays, I was so excited to be let out of the trunk that the spacious lobby of our building was always a welcome sight. Besides my commuting difficulties, I also experienced problems with the ubiquity of the business handshake. It seemed that every whiteboard session, every customer satisfaction seminar, every hospitality suite soiree required a flurry of handshakes, which for me was simply an impossibility. Whenever a man in a suit extended his hand, I experienced a severe anxiety attack, my trachea closing up like a bee sting victim in the throes of anaphylactic shock, my lungs filling with fluid. After three consecutive business luncheons required me to jab an EpiPen into my outer thigh, I began preemptively bowing to clients and coworkers to avoid the dreaded handshake. Though there was often an awkward pause, everyone inevitably bowed back, assuming I was educated in Japan or was some sort of Far Eastern cultural aficionado. On casual Fridays, I always wore a kimono, further solidifying my right to a handshake exemption. Despite these initial hiccups, my transition into the insurance world went smoothly, and I quickly mastered the fine art of evaluating monetary losses and settling policyholders' claims. Many people loathe their office jobs, but for me, work was never the problem. The problem was when I wasn't working. Our company shared a cafeteria with the other tenants of our building, and during lunch, a long queue would form along glass cases of deli meats and rhubarb pie, the foldable tables packed with men in suits and women in blouses and slacks. In order to avoid physical contact with workers in the tightly compacted lunch line, I would always bring a sack lunch, sitting at an empty table whenever possible. Besides giving me a protective three-foot buffer zone on either side, the calming effect of the extra space somewhat lessened the migraines I developed when subjected to my coworkers' mindless conversations. My headache would start with a detailed analysis of last Sunday's Packers game, a sales rep or mailroom clerk recounting every botched opportunity in the red zone in agonizing detail, tossing around phrases like eye formation, blitzing the A-gap, nickel package, and power sweep with feigned expertise. A chorus of voices from marketing would then call for coach Mike Sherman to be fired, listing his sins with such vehemence I felt like I was eating my salami sandwich in a war crimes tribunal. My condition would worsen as the conversations turned to various television programs I had never seen, mostly reality shows, where the cast members' lives were discussed with such alarming familiarity you would have thought they were marooned on the third floor between Oppenheimer Confections and A&R Upholstery. There was a computer programmer who spoke only in movie quotes and TV catchphrases, 
and when asked a question that couldn't be answered with a sitcom one-liner or Hollywood monologue, he would simply stare blankly ahead, his eyes unblinking, a sad spectacle of pop culture-induced mental atrophy. The next topic for discussion would be the latest crop of female temp workers, with in-depth commentary on who was easy, who was hard to get, and who was completely asexual. By this point, my head was throbbing and my vision was starting to blur, until the graphic descriptions of a supply room tryst with a receptionist seemed to be emanating from the mouth of a Monet portrait study instead of an insurance adjuster. By the time my coworkers started discussing the weather, I was ready to black out, so I would leave the cafeteria for the handicapped bathroom, which I could lock to ensure my privacy. I would finish my salami sandwich seated on the toilet and gaze at the stick figure in a wheelchair painted on the door and say, I know how you feel, buddy. I know how you feel. My coworkers made a tradition of drinking at the baseball-themed Pinch Hitters Bar and Grill every evening after work, and though I was invited, I never joined them. Instead, I rode in the trunk of the Oldsmobile Cutlass to my east side apartment and drew a cold bath, submerging myself and holding my breath for as long as I could without passing out. My one goal in life was to break the world record which was 8 minutes and 6 seconds, and after only 5 years of training, I was already up to 7 minutes. The hardest part about my training wasn't staying underwater, it was convincing myself to come up for air. As the oxygen slowly slipped away from my brain, I was filled with such an all-encompassing peace that I wanted to lie beneath the surface, forever. About a month after I was hired, my boss called me into his office and invited me to sit down in the comfortable swiveling chair across from his desk. I gingerly approached my seat and bowed before sitting down, just in case he was plotting a surprise handshake. Are you happy here, Jones? He asked me, his wrinkled face at odds with the youthful bronze likeness serving as a paperweight on his desk. Why, yes sir, I replied. I derive a great deal of satisfaction from my work here at Feral Insurance. Yes, I can see that, he said. Your work performance is excellent. I'm a bit concerned, however, with your lack of rapport with your fellow employees. You see, Feral Insurance is like one big family, and when someone in the family isn't getting along with someone else, it affects everybody. One bad apple ruins the bushel. You don't want to ruin the bushel, do you, Jones? No, sir, I said. My boss left his seat and wandered to his bookshelf, where he retrieved an amateur bobsledding trophy. His team had apparently won first place in something called the Wawatosa Classic, which, judging from the cheap construction of the trophy, was not one of the more prestigious amateur bobsledding competitions. Now, take the sport of bobsledding, for instance, said my boss, caressing the imitation silver with his fingers. Even if the first three men do everything perfectly, just one tiny miscommunication by the fourth man can send the sled careening over the wall, shattering the spines of everyone inside. For dramatic effect, he slammed the trophy on the desk 
causing his grinning bronze face to wobble back and forth over a stack of company letterhead. He had obviously rehearsed this speech during his lunch break. Jones, he said, why don't you come join us tonight at Pinch Hitters and let your hair down a little bit, get to know some people. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and I'm sure you don't want to be a dull boy. Do you want to be a dull boy, Jones? No, sir, I said. Good. I didn't think so. My boss returned the trophy to the bookcase and motioned for me to rise from my seat. His tiny bronze paperweight head was still wobbling like a tuning fork. See you at seven o'clock, he said, and be sure to order the Grand Slam burger with the sacrifice fries. It's like a home run in the bottom of the ninth, smothered with caramelized onions. He walked me to the door, gave me a winning smile, and warmly extended his hand. I vomited all over it. boss, I started having trouble sleeping. Every night, I would return for my mandatory dinner at Pinch Hitter's Bar and Grill, with the inane conversations of my co-workers lodged in my skull, the word-for-word -word recitations of the drink menu, and in-depth analysis of our waitress's curvaceous body pounding at my nerve endings like jackhammers. Even though I would drink myself into such a stupor I could barely lift myself from the trunk of the Oldsmobile Cutlass, the sedating effects of the alcohol did little to dull my throbbing head. Seeking a release, I called a phone sex service, but all the operator talked about was touching me here or touching me there, and I broke out in hives across my entire torso. I hired a professional escort and instructed her to read me bedtime stories but her squeaky, high-pitched voice was so irritating, it only worsened my condition. The only time I found some peace was when I submerged myself in the bathtub, the onset of oxygen deprivation softly singing me to sleep. I tried using scuba diving equipment, but it just wasn't the same. 
without suffocation, the underwater lullaby lost its melody. At about the same time, my boss transferred me to the sales department to improve my interpersonal communication skills. As our company's primary focus was terrorism insurance, my first week of training was devoted to the fine art of exploiting people's fears and anxieties for monetary gain. In a series of role-playing exercises, we learned how to convince a soybean farmer that his John Deere tractor was ripe for a jihadist hijacking, or that the nearby world's largest ball of twine was a prime target for Al-Qaeda. Persuading people that America's heartland was on deck for a suicide bombing required both subtlety and inventiveness. In my first sales call with the owner of a local pastry shop, I reminded him that nothing is more American than apple pie, making its purveyors particularly vulnerable to anti-American extremists. To the manager of a roadside diner off of Highway 151, I pointed to the sign that said, world-famous barbecue ribs, a proclamation of international importance that could easily attract the attention of the Mujahideen. As long as the terror alert hovered somewhere between yellow and orange, we were in business. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. Although I quickly mastered the intricacies of insurance salesmanship, my newly developed skill set was of little use in my compulsory nightly outings with the staff. I would sit in our usual booth beneath an overhanging rain delay tarp with Raleigh Finger's forged signature and stare silently at the tall glass of Liney's Red in front of me, carefully studying the refraction of light through the dark vermilion lager. As my coworkers chattered incessantly around me, I would knock back drink after drink until their faces were suitably amorphous, like extras in a lucid dream. With my surroundings less defined and my cognitive functions slowed to a halt, I would imagine that my life was merely a nightmare from which I would soon awaken. This theory was disproved the following morning with a severe, unrelenting hangover. One such morning, when I was struggling to climb inside the trunk of the cutlass, I discovered the bar tab for the previous evening on one of the briefcases. At the bottom of the receipt was a phone number for a customer satisfaction survey, with the possibility of a $10 discount upon completion of the call. Always looking to save money, I pocketed the receipt before Humphrey abruptly closed the trunk, narrowly missing my fingers. I always had to be extra careful with Humphrey, as he was still sore about the trust fall. After convincing an elderly woman over the phone that Akron, Ohio was a likely candidate for a terrorist attack, I dialed the number on the receipt I was instructed to hold by a computerized voice as Bridge Over Troubled Water played in the background. Just as Art Garfunkel was about to hit the high note, the music cut out and a woman's voice said, Hello, Pinch Hitters Bar and Grill. I lost my grip on the phone and fell out of my chair. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever heard. Rendered completely dumbstruck, I listened to the woman repeat herself for about 10 seconds and then hang up, 
her melodious intonation replaced by a blaring dial tone. As the hanging phone swung back and forth like a pendulum, I remained on the office's carpeted floor, oblivious to the shrieking phone line, my thoughts occupied with the hypnotizing voice of the phone survey stranger. Every rising inflection was a song, every aspirated phoneme a revelation. Her vocal cords seemed to resonate in time with life itself. Somewhere in the subtle nuances of her slight Midwestern accent, in a pregnant pause or a stolen breath, was the key to immortality. Such was the power of this woman's voice. After about 15 minutes, I became cognizant of the busy signal resonating in my eardrums, as well as a strange chirping sound that seemed to be coming from every direction. I glanced around the room and noticed that smoke was pouring out of the hallway, and people were running, screaming from their cubicles, knocking each other over in a mad dash to the stairwell. As the smoke filled the room, I began to feel lightheaded and was overwhelmed by a feeling of great tranquility, like the underwater stillness of my bathtub baptisms. I calmly redialed the pinch hitter's phone number and patiently waited as the computer put me on hold. This time, the music was The Air That I Breathe by The Hollies. The smoke was now so dense I could barely see the handset of the telephone, and I began coughing violently. I tried my best to sing along with the Hollies song, but by the second chorus, the smoke was causing significant pitch problems. My mental faculties were slowing, short-circuiting due to asphyxiation, and when the woman's heavenly voice appeared, I didn't even notice that the music had stopped. Hello, Pinch Hitter's Bar and Grill, she said. How may I help you? Sometimes, I choked. All I need is the air that I breathe, and to love you. There was a brief pause, something about two-for-one margaritas, and then a dial tone. The fire alarm was joined by a choir of angels, and I immediately passed out. After my release from the hospital for smoke inhalation, I took a day off from work to rest and recuperate. All my waking hours were spent taking the pinch hitter's phone survey, adopting different accents to conceal my serial calling. As I raided the bar's decor, cuisine, and service in a thick Scottish brogue or muddled Spanglish, I would lie enraptured with every vowel, consonant, and diphthong uttered by the woman with a golden voice. My eyelids would droop shut, and my breathing would slow as she explained the survey's 1-5 to five star rating scale, and before I knew it, 
I would be fast asleep. Her questions about restroom cleanliness answered by my loud, contented snores. My over-the-phone angel was the patron saint of insomniacs. The next day, I returned to work, well-rested and feeling like a million dollars. That morning, I had set a personal record of 7 minutes 35 seconds underwater, so I celebrated with a bottle of champagne in the trunk of the Oldsmobile Cutlass. I spilled a good deal of it on my wool pinstripe suit due to potholes on East Johnson, but it hardly mattered. I was holding in rarefied air. At work, I learned that an important client was flying in from Minneapolis, and due to the unsightly soot stains covering the office, we were receiving him at a fancy seafood restaurant across the street. Because of the prestigious nature of the client, the entire staff was required to attend a banquet in his honor, held during our lunch break. I spent the morning wrapped around a heating duct, hoping my champagne-soaked suit would dry up in time. At 12 o'clock, the office walked in single file across Mifflin to welcome the client, who represented the majority owners of the Mall of America. He was interested in perching terrorism coverage for Camp Snoopy and wanted to talk shop with us face-to-face over a plate of oysters Rockefeller and garlic shrimp scampi. On my way to our table, I passed the lobster tank and gazed enviously at the tightly packed crustaceans with rubber bands over their claws. They live their whole lives underwater, I thought. The best I can do is seven and a half minutes. By the time I reached my seat, the client had arrived, and my coworkers were waiting in line to shake his hand. I sat down and studied the drink menu, getting as far as the house wines before he noticed me. Hey son, what's the matter? he asked me. Don't you want to shake my hand? I don't shake hands, I said. Well, why the hell not? he asked, visibly perturbed. My boss stepped in and tried to defuse the situation with characteristic false optimism. Jones, just shake the man's hand, he said. It's not going to kill you. I shook my head no and buried my head in the drink menu, hoping that everyone would just magically disappear. Looks like you don't know how to rein in your crew, said the client to my boss. I don't know if I can do business with a company where the dogs run wild. My boss was now fuming. He didn't have a bobsled trophy to slam for dramatic effect, so he turned to other manners of persuasion. All right, Jones, he said through gritted teeth. Since you obviously didn't learn how to shake hands during leadership training, I'll give you a crash course myself. My boss grabbed my hand and started shaking it vigorously. I tried to push him off, but he had me in a vice grip. There was nothing I could do to shake him. My throat started to swell and my breathing became labored. I tried to scream, but no sound came out. My airway was completely constricted. As my boss shook my hand, the room wobbled like the bronze bust on his desk, like the prongs of a freshly struck tuning fork. I heard voices, echoes of the past, 
workplace conversations broken into pieces about Brett Favre's shoulder surgery, who wants to marry a millionaire, and banging a strawberry blonde flight attendant in the business class restroom. My brain was deprived of oxygen, but I didn't feel any peace. The voices were clattering inside my skull like rattling chains. I glanced around the room, and everyone was laughing at me, pointing at me, like I was a sideshow freak, like I was the elephant man. I tried to push them back into the canvas of a Monet painting, but their faces wouldn't blur. They were too well-defined. Their jagged smiles were indestructible. Even when my vision went black, their smiles were still there, hollering and whistling on unseen faces. Everything was now very dark, the disembodied teeth in various shades of white and yellow, the only flashes of light in the endless void. The teeth began to dim, and soon the room was almost pitch black, except for a tiny spark where a public phone used to be. The spark grew in size and number until it was a stream of glowing embers, like a 4th of July sparkler, a cascading beacon, the envy of all fireflies. As the sparkler showered me with light, a voice broke through the din of neurotic laughter, and I recognized it as the voice of my guardian angel, asking me if I considered the service poor, average, good, or excellent. The sparkler exploded into red, white, and blue fireworks, and suddenly my vision returned, my boss releasing me from his grasp and sending me collapsing to the floor. I choked and sputtered on the ornate needle-felted carpet of the restaurant, and my coworkers gathered around me, staring at the grotesque red splotches covering my skin. I regained my breath and hoisted myself up with my chair my joints gradually acclimating to an upright standing position. Without saying a word, I staggered to the lobsters at the front of the restaurant, turned to face the entire staff, and stuck my head in the tank, my unblinking eyes staring upside down at a ticking wall-mounted clock. One minute went by, then two minutes, then three, and still I stared at the hands of the clock not blinking, not moving. My coworkers formed a circle around the tank, but no one tried to touch me, either by my boss's order or their own fear. Four minutes, then five minutes elapsed, and still I did not move, my expression locked in permanent defiance. Beneath my head, the lobsters were restless, their antennas twitching, their restrained claws waving wildly, as if they sensed the coming of something historic. At six minutes, things stopped mattering to me. It didn't matter that I rode to work in the trunk of an Oldsmobile, that I ate alone in a handicapped restroom, that my true love was nothing but a disembodied voice. At seven minutes, it didn't matter that I lived in an invisible shell with no entrance or exit and no protection from a lethal embrace. At eight minutes, nothing mattered at all. The last seven seconds were not really seven seconds. They were a lifetime. 
They were a childhood of Red Rover and Thumb Wars, dog piles and secret handshakes. They were holding my mother's hand as I walked across the street and falling asleep in her arms. They were a first kiss, a slow dance at prom, a wedding ring snug on the quivering finger. They were poignant and euphoric, heartbreaking and glorious, and they were mine. It was mine. Eight minutes, seven seconds. The world record was mine. I removed my head from the tank and filled my lungs with air. They say air is tasteless, but this time they were wrong. This breath of air was a choice veal cutlet, a marinated swordfish, a 32-ounce sirloin steak. It was like a home run in the bottom of the ninth, smothered with caramelized onions. I walked towards the exit, and the crowd of onlookers immediately parted, allowing me safe passage down the steps into the lobby. My champion lungs exchanged carbon dioxide for oxygen, and I looked over my shoulder at my coworkers and smiled. They knew this changed everything. They knew I was blessed by angels. They knew they could never touch me again. Thank you.